I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast, and be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it for me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. We're live on the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past 22 and a half years. I got to tell you something. Yes, I'm aware that in the last couple of hours, we've heard about Russian missiles landing in Poland, killing at least two people. And if you say, well, what's the giant significance? We understand there's a war going on there. Yes, there is a war that's going on in Ukraine. But the fact is, if you've got missiles landing in Poland, then you've got a greater chance of pulling the rest of the world into that conflict. We're going to be keeping an eye on that one today. But I want to focus on the Pacific Northwest. And let me start with the Twitter poll, and then I'll get to this question. If we have allowed public schools to be sexualized, are we then surprised when the schools attract sexual predators who work as teachers? And I will give you a specific example, although just about a couple of times a month, sometimes once a week, I will hear about a case of another teacher accused of sexual crimes against another child. It's a scandal that makes a Catholic church scandal pale by comparison, but that's just my point of view. Let me start with the Twitter poll, though, first and tell you how you can take part in this conversation every day. If you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers, you're always going to go right to the head of the line if you want to. Just tell my producers that you disagree with me and you're willing to advance your argument. We'll put you on. Just stick around for a couple of my questions after you've made your point. Uh, you can also send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll. Now, here's the question I saw. 
Former Washington State University football coach, Wazoo football coach, Nick Rolovich, has formally sued the school, which means he's suing the state of Washington. He has sued the athletic director, and he has sued Governor Jay Inslee. Now, the coach lost his job for refusing to take the jab. The lawsuit was filed yesterday in Superior Court in Whitman County. It seeks damages related to the coach's firing over his refusal to comply with the state's mandate to get vaccinated. Rolovich was fired from WSU last October after he declined to get vaccinated. Four other assistant coaches were also fired. Yeah, you know that story already. It happened more than a year ago. Well, at the time of his firing, Rolovich had a five-year, $2 million contract. And according to the lawsuit, WSU claimed it had just cause to terminate Rolovich over his refusal to get vaccinated and did not have to pay him 60% for the remaining three and a half years on his contract. He's now suing. Should government workers fired for not getting the jab get their jobs back? I think the answer to that is yes. And I've been making that argument going all the way back to last fall when both in the state of Oregon and the state of Washington, so many government workers got pink slips for refusing the jab. And I'll, I've got a couple of thoughts on this a little bit later on in the hour. But just in short, we now know that taking the vaccination does not keep you from getting COVID. It does not keep you from transmitting COVID to other people. Now, if you're saying we have to get everybody who works for a state agency, a city agency, or a county agency to take the vaccine, and you say, well, why? Why are you so insistent? Well, the answer is because it'll protect them and it'll protect the people around them. If you haven't noticed lately, uh, Joe Biden has had COVID a couple of times. His director of the CDC has had COVID a couple of times. In fact, there are about five people who work in the Biden administration who between or among all five of them have been vaccinated a total of 25 times and they still get sick and they can still give the illness to other people. So where's the justification for firing people from their public sector jobs? If you remember, Jay Inslee seriously shortchanged the state of Washington over the last year. He made sure that WashDOT did not have nearly enough snowplow drivers, and we're coming up to winter right now again. He made sure that they didn't have nearly enough people to operate the state's ferry system, which moves people around. And Oregon isn't much better. The state of Oregon fired a lot of workers, so did the state of Washington. Cities and counties fired workers. And, of course, in the private sector, hospitals fired workers. Should government workers, and I'll extend that to private sector workers just parenthetically, but should government workers fired for not getting the jab get their jobs back, including the former coach at Wazoo? You can find today's Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show or at LarsLarson.com. It's always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, a man has been arrested for trying to rape a 15-year-old girl. And you say, that's terrible. I say, what makes it worse is the man who's facing those charges, and he does have a right to his day in court, but it sounds like they caught him red-handed. Uh, this man is a high school teacher. He just went to work for the Reynolds School District about three years ago. He teaches social studies, and apparently the police in Bend arrested him. And why? He got caught in a sting. He was communicating in an online message forum and he thought he was communicating with a 15-year-old girl from Central Oregon. 
and he made plans to meet the girl at the Target store in Bend. Yes, when he showed up, it turns out he had not been messaging to a 15-year-old girl. He was actually interacting with a police detective. The meetup was set for 8 p.m. Friday night at the Target store in Bend, and that's when Hernando Corchato showed up. That's his last name, or Edward Hernandez Corchado. He shows up expecting to meet a 15-year-old girl. Instead, he's booked into the Deschutes County Jail on charges of online sexual corruption of a child, attempted rape, attempted sodomy, attempted encouraging a child sex abuse, attempted contributing to the sexual delinquency of a minor, and luring a minor for sexual conduct. He is at Reynolds High School. They tell us he is on leave. I'd be willing to bet he's on paid leave right now, which means we're still paying his salary while he's facing these charges. And you say, well, what's the significance of that? I would make this case. Virtually every single week there is a story like this one. Oregon schools in the North Clackamas District contain books with pornographic imagery, including imagery of sexual acts. Kindergartners in the Beaverton School District are told they must learn gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Kindergartners, and they have to learn that by the end of the school year, otherwise they don't move on to first grade. Almost every week there's another story about the sexualization of children in schools. And I would make the case to you that when we begin to say we're going to sexualize children in schools, then the sexual predators are going to take a message from that. And the sexual predators are going to say, wow, I can find more victims in the schools. And it sounds like this teacher is accused of trying to do exactly that, only not in his own school district. And by the way, at Reynolds High School, where this social studies teacher is now on leave while he's facing these sexual charges involving a 15-year-old girl, they're having a transgender day of remembrance ceremony tomorrow. In other words, the folks who run your public schools are trying to sexualize children all day long at school, and then you're surprised by that kind of outcome? I wouldn't be. Glad to have you with me on a Tuesday. Coming up in a moment, how do we fix that shortage of government workers? And is there an easy fix that's right within our reach? I'll talk about that next, and I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you bloody well right. You know he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. I don't know about you, but I keep hearing the government say they can't find enough workers to get the job done. I also hear that hospitals are short-staffed, too, despite billions of dollars shoveled out by the government, as usual. Here's an idea for fixing all of that. Hire back all the folks you fired for not taking the COVID vaccination. Now, I mentioned that yesterday, fired Wazoo football coach Nick Roloff fire, filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit over his firing over the vaccine. You could save some big bucks right there. Oh, I know the Supreme Court has decided the government has the right to fire the unjabbed. I'm just asking you, is it the right thing to do? Is it right for workers? Is it right for citizens? Is it right for taxpayers? Is it right for anybody who cares that the government does supply some services we actually care about, in addition to all the garbage they do that nobody cares about? Is this the right way to run things? We know a lot more about COVID and the vaccine 
if you want to call it that, than we did two years ago. We know the vaccine does not stop you from becoming infected. Uh, Check with Joe Biden if you don't believe me. It does not necessarily stop you transmitting it to somebody else. And for some, we know it doesn't stop hospitalization. And in the most extreme cases, it doesn't stop you from dying. Some vaccine, right? We also know it has some bad side effects for some of those who get it. Over the weekend, Pfizer and Moderna, and when you announce something over the weekend at a big company, it's because you want the story to kind of disappear. But you can still say officially, we did announce it. We just happened to announce it on a weekend when nobody would notice. They are launching new studies of myocarditis, pericarditis, and heart inflammation connected to the COVID vaccine in some of the people who took the jab. So that shows vaccine skepticism wasn't nearly as crazy as some people said it was. And liberals always tell us that everybody has a right to make their own health care decisions, although I suspect with the liberals, they're mostly talking about killing babies. With everything we know today, doesn't it make sense to drop the mandates, hire back the government workers we need, and just get the job done? And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. Well, speaking of stories that you drop in a way in which you hope they don't get much public attention, in a late night news dump last night, The Joe Biden administration released data showing that in the month of October, 230,678 illegal aliens were encountered at the southern border in the month of October alone. It wasn't quite 10,000 per day, but it came awfully close. That is the highest October number in Department of Homeland Security history. And, of course, Joe Biden doesn't want to remind you of that. He also knows doesn't want you to think about the 5 million people who've illegally come into the United States just since he became president. And, by the way, less than two years have gone by. I know it can seem like 10, but that's kind of the Joe Biden administration for you. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Pacific Northwest. Currently, MEI Group is hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. TheMEIGroup.com. Henry writes in, Lars, my son-in-law and I are no longer interested in hunting in Oregon because Governor Kate Brown has done her best to destroy hunting. Carbon Kate Brown did her best to burn down what's left of the National Forest. Hunting private land in Oregon can be found, but I'm not into fee hunting. So we're going to hunt in Idaho. We got a bull moose and a bull elk so far, and we still have deer tags. Kate Brown has done everything she can to kill off big game in Oregon, and we're done hunting in a state that does not want big game. Signed, Henry. Well, Henry, I got news for you, too. In the state of Washington, they're talking about bringing grizzly bears back to the North Cascades. And if you say, well, that's kind of cool, grizzly bears are fun to watch from a distance, a safe distance if you can. Let me tell you something. I've seen grizzly bears up close because when I was a little kid, my dad was a park ranger, both at Mount Rainier and at Glacier National Park. And occasionally they'd have grizzly bears and brown bears and black bears wander in, and then they'd have to be captured and then taken away to live somewhere else. Usually that wasn't all that successful, but at least it was an effort. In this case, 
If you're going to bring grizzly bears back, yes, there's a possible threat to human beings, but apparently having another apex predator predator in the North Oregon Cascades or North Washington Cascades is not a big concern for the liberals who make policy. But consider this as well. What do you think is going to happen to the wild game population as you up the number of cougar, up the number of wolves, and up the number of grizzly bears? Yeah, that's right. Game populations go away, hunting is hurt, and the liberals are happy. At least that's the way I sum it up. To your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. John, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind today? Well, I was just um, in the Clackamas County school system. We got uh, two kids in elementary, or one in elementary and one in middle. We actually pulled him out because um, we started asking about the curriculum and um, they didn't give us a clear answer on anything and uh, started touching our kid and being inappropriate. They even uh, had a what they called a, some kind of curriculum where they're doing a one-on-one with the elementary uh, school kids, teacher and student alone, um, and asked, you know, some personal questions to our nine-year-old. And uh, so we just... You know, just want to make sure people are aware of this going on. Well, John, that, that's the case I was trying to make at the front end, that when you hear about these crimes, alleged crimes in the case of this guy from Reynolds High School, but it sounds like they've got him pretty well dead to rights because he was, you know, he was text messaging or online messaging with what he thought was a 15-year-old girl. It turns out to be a police mm-hmm. detective. They've been doing stings like that for a good long time. Now, like I said, he has a right to go to court and defend himself. But I think part of that may be because when you've got schools that are sexualizing kids, that is, you're saying to kids, we want you to think about sex. We want you to think about masturbation. We want you to think about whether or not you're transgender, whether you're really a boy or a girl, or you want to explore other things. When we have clubs that are aimed at LGBTQIIA. Yeah, and they all the, the clubs. Yep. Yeah, they, they have the all, clubs in there. So, so what happens when you sexualize the kids, and then you've got some, some teachers, not all, and certainly not even a majority, a small number of teachers who will see those kids as potential victims, basically. They're predators looking for prey. Uh, that I th- I'm suggesting that the situation you're creating in the public schools is exactly that. And the smartest thing I know that people could do is take a look at the schools and say, are they teaching my kid? Nope, they're not. They're not being successful. Are they sexualized, my, my kid? Yes, they are. Are some of the teachers, a very small number, but still a significant number, are they turning into predators and my kid is the prey? My suggestion would be run away. Back in a moment, we'll talk to one of the winners from Tuesday's election last, and we'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our Twitter poll today, if you'd rather participate that way, should government workers fired for not getting the jab get their jobs back? I would answer that question, yes. And what kind of brought it to the fore today because we try to make our Twitter polls reflective of the latest news. Former Washington State University football coach Nick Rolovich uh, has formally sued the school 
He says he's owed millions of dollars on a contract that he was fired from uh, because he refused to take the COVID vaccine. And in fact, I respect his decision. He should have had the right to make that decision for himself. I think, though, that every other one of the public employees who were fired in Oregon and in Washington for not taking the jab, I think those people should get their jobs back as well. And when Jay Inslee or Kate Brown start to try to explain to you, I'm sorry, our government agencies aren't working so well. We can't run the ferries on time. We can't keep the snow plowed from the mountain passes. And in the state of Oregon, public agencies that are running way behind, and you wonder why. Well, because maybe you fired a bunch of the people who work at those public agencies. Does that make any sense? To your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS, let's start for, first with Susan. Hey, Susan, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network and KMED. What's on your mind today? Uh, thanks, Lars. <clears throat> I um, heard your report about the two missiles landing in Poland and immediately <clears throat> excuse me, called my son-in-law, who lives in Krakow, and um, to see what he knew. And apparently what the Polish government is telling the people is that they think this was a huge oops um, by either the pilot or the equipment itself because the bombs landed about four kilometers over the border from Ukraine in a very uh, slightly populated area. It's all farmland there. Apparently, uh, they hit a um, container or um, some kind of shed-type building. And unfortunately, two people, you know, were there and got killed. They died. So it was a very unlucky day for them, yes. Um, But it's one one of the hazards um, of of having a, a war going on at all, that if you've got some countries that are in NATO, Ukraine is not in NATO, uh, but if you accidentally hit somebody else's country, then it, it, it has the potential to drag other parties into a conflict like that. Uh, and in fact, if you look back at the history of World War I, it reflects exactly that. You have one attempted assassination or a, an assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, and all of a sudden the entire world's at war. Right, right. <clears throat> well, there's lots of causes that uh, are fabricated to... <laughs> to create war. But anyway, um, I I hope that this story that he's heard is correct and that um, that it was a mistake and it's just uh, really unfortunate and I hope it doesn't get blown up out of proportion as well um, to escalate I things. But, I hope you're right. What, what's your son doing in Krakow? Uh, living there. Um, he is a lawyer, actually. And and he's from. So he is he up, from? He up, he, yeah. Did he grow up here or grow yeah. up there? Yeah. He no no. Um. He it's not my son. Sorry, it's my daughter is married to oh, uh, my son in law. My daughter grew up here, but <laughs> she's been living over in Europe for ten years, and they met and fell in love, and um. So they are living in Krakow now, where his family and <clears throat> is living as well. Well, m- maybe time for an extended visit back home to see mom, huh? Yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe right. Yeah, tomorrow will be good. 
Yeah, tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow would be great. Susan, would you hold on for a moment? I want to get Susan's contact information in case we want to reach out to her down the line because we don't know where this is going to go. All we know at this point is that uh, Poland has convened an emergency meeting. They say that uh, two missiles landed inside of Poland. As Susan said, about four kilometers, that's about two and a half miles inside of Poland, uh, right across the border from Ukraine. Let's go to Kevin. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Tuesday. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, thanks for taking the call. Um, yeah, I just uh, the whole vaccine mandate and how that rolled out was uh, uh, everybody should look at it as very concerning because uh, uh, people were working in their jobs and they when they were hired on their jobs and specifically, uh, you know, in my case, um, I didn't breach any contract. I mean, I never had a contract to uh, uh, to invoke anything like that. And, well, uh, and Kevin, so is another way to say it that when you went to work there, you knew what the requirements were, and then they changed the requirements because of the pandemic, but you hadn't signed off on that when you first took the job, had you? Exactly. And, uh, and um, you know, then the, the other thing is that you're, you know, you're, you're uh, uh, forced to resign or be terminated. And, you know, when you're terminated, you... Uh, lose um all those things uh um that you built up uh, d- uh doing uh, good works and good performance and um you lose those um uh for no reason other than um uh, you want to be in control of your health care and um uh you know for instance you lose your sick pay built up you uh you get uh, cut short of your retirement you um uh, you lose your seniority, I would imagine, if, if you've got if seniority matters and most jobs seniority does matter. And and Kevin, let me yeah. ask you this. If they were to change because, for instance, Customs and Border Protection, a federal agency, uh, they've now backed down on their mandates, not only the mandates about vaccines. They've also backed down on the mandates when it comes to whether or not uh, you, you have to have covid tests and this and that. And the other thing. If we've seen all these entities, both private and federal and state, that have backed down on these things, if they came to you and said, Kevin, we'll hire you back, we need you back on the job, would you take the job? Um, boy, I, you know, I'd seriously consider it, but uh, it uh, definitely, uh, you know, uh, what's done to you at that point definitely says uh, um, uh, the type of people that you're working around. Uh, you know, to me, it's... Uh, uh, it's evil in nature, and um, we've already had this in our history, just the religious aspect of it. You know, if if Joe DeMeo, devout Catholic, decides that Molly Mormon's religion is, is uh, not even a religion, well, there's discrimination right there. I mean, it, uh, we've already had this stuff and, and sorted it out in our history, and, and we're, we're going think? way back and very easily uh, going back, and uh, people are removing people from the job and and saying well it has nothing to do with your performance and your performance is great but we're uh, doing this and by the way uh you know we're terminating you and um you get uh uh you can you you don't get the references and the uh um that kind of stuff uh that if you've done good service uh that you should get and i i I agree with you because kevin and and here we are Governor Brown just yesterday announced another 
emergency. This time it's over RSV. And so she announces another uh, another emergency. I don't know about uh, Jay Inslee. He hung on to his emergency for just short of 1,000 days. It only ended a short time ago. And there's no guarantee they won't go back to it. And, in fact, uh, you've seen people who are, who've been asked, are you, would you do anything differently the next time around? And I don't think they would. And at the same time, the state of Washington and the state of Oregon have said, we're short of people. Well, you're short of people because you fired a bunch of good people. Why don't you consider hiring them back and dropping the mandates? Or are you warning everybody by your example, we might just do it again? It's a Tuesday. It's the Lars Larson Show, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. I want to tell you something that really gets under my skin, and I saw this story yesterday, and this I would apply to just about any government in any one of the three Northwest states, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. I suspect it happens less often in Idaho, but imagine this. When you've been let go from a job, Usually, you'll get some kind of severance, like a week's pay, sometimes two weeks' pay. I've seen situations where if they let somebody go who's been there for 10 years, they might say, well, our standard is we'll give you a week's severance pay because we had to let you go for every year you've been here. You might get 10 weeks' pay. Can you imagine getting a one-year paycheck? Now, I'm going to tell you something. In some of the upper echelons of government jobs, when somebody gets fired, Somebody's let go because they don't like the job you're doing, uh, but they can't fire you for cause. Cause usually requires something more than that, like you've done something that's actually wrong. But if they just say, look, we're, we're not happy with the job. We need you to move along. We're going to give you a pink slip. Oregon and Washington are what are called employment at will states. That is, you can walk in as a worker and quit anytime you want. Your boss can say, I'm letting you go anytime he wants or she wants. And the only limitation is you can't fire somebody for being black, for being female, for being Catholic or Jewish or any of the other protected classes. You can't say, I'm firing you for that. But if a boss just says, I don't need you here anymore, I'm letting you go, that's what employment at will means. It's an equal relationship. You can quit anytime you want, even if it's inconvenient for the boss. The boss can let you go anytime he or she wants, even if it's inconvenient for you. Well, there's a young lady who is currently the city of Portland's director of violence prevention. Now, if you've noticed, violence has been going up in the city for about the last three years, and she is being let go. And she's being let go with a severance package that I would call a golden parachute $113,000 in severance, equivalent to an entire year's paycheck, plus six months of medical coverage. This has become so routine in government, I would like to see it stop. Now, I understand there may be times when a government or even a private company, maybe it's Nike, maybe it's Microsoft or Boeing or Intel, they say, there's this person we want to get on our staff. And it is really critical because this person has unique skills and abilities that we can't find in any other worker. I don't think that's the case with this young lady. Uh, but, but if you said, as a big private company, we really want to hire this person, and the person says, that's fine, I'll go to work for you, but I want a contract that says I'm going to be working for you for a certain period of time, two years, five years, ten years, whatever it is, and I want to guarantee that if you decide to let me go other than for cause, I get a certain amount of severance. And you negotiate that at the front end. 
public sector jobs should not include golden parachutes. And I would love, we may even put that up as tomorrow's uh, Twitter poll. Should you have golden parachutes from public sector jobs? My answer would be no. You can answer any way you like. In any case, glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Brandon. Uh, Let's go, Brandon. Welcome to the program and thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. How you doing? Um, I wanted to get your opinion. I have this theory about the whole COVID thing. Um, I think, personally, COVID was just a Trojan horse to see how they can gain power over the people using the whole safety thing. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that because I've been curious about your um, no, I, I thought I'd I thought I'd been clear on that. I think they very clearly used it that way. But what I'm not going to suggest, I don't think there's evidence to say that it was deliberately set loose on on us or by the Chinese. I think they created a virus that was dangerous and the Chinese were sloppy about it and it got out. But I'll remind you that many Democrats, including most famously a guy by the name of Rahm Emanuel, who worked for Obama and then he went on to be uh, mayor of, of Chicago, he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And what he meant was when something really oftentimes horrible happens, you know, whatever the horrible thing is, it could be a pandemic, could be an earthquake, could be a tornado, could be any other kind of disaster that happens never let that go to waste always use it to your advantage and you say well how do you how do you let a hurricane or earthquake work to your advantage well you're seeing a good example of it a pandemic is basically a biological earthquake you know and the after effects are still affecting us today so when those things happen when those crises happen whether they were done deliberately or whether they were the result of an accident there are people in government who will say Let's use this to our advantage. They look for a way to make use of it. And in fact, I think your theory is right. They said, how much can we get away with? So, for example, Jay Inslee, and I mentioned this earlier this hour, Jay Inslee used it as an excuse for almost 1,000 days of emergency status, emergency powers for the governor, which under the state constitution, the governor of no state should be able to say, I'm making all the decisions for the next thousand days. And the people's representatives, they're not allowed to take part in those decisions. That's not the kind of government we had. If we'd wanted that kind of government, there was a point where Americans could have said, we want a king. You know, if we had decided to have a king instead of a president and Washington didn't like the idea, we'd have a king and the king would just say, make it so, and it would be so. Jay Inslee behaved like a king, and he got that ability because he didn't let a crisis go to waste. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer? They're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now. 
and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your phone calls and your emails. You know, one of the biggest choke points on Interstate 5, all the way from Canada down to Mexico, the biggest choke point is a bridge over the Columbia River. And the government agencies involved in that bridge on both sides of the river have talked about replacing it for the last couple of decades. The problem is... They keep insisting on including a lot of other razzmatazz, including light rail, which has been voted down by voters on both sides of the river. And yet and still, those in government say, you're going to take light rail if we have to force it on you. Oh, and then there's a second issue, and that is, should we add tolls to an interstate freeway? In general, tolls are not allowed on interstate freeways. Anywhere in America, if you take money from the federal government to build interstate freeways, you are generally not allowed to put tolling on those freeways unless you've agreed to expand capacity, which, as I understand, the latest iterations of the Columbia River Bridge Replacement, otherwise known as the IBR, um, they don't really enhance the capabilities of the bridge at all. You get basically the same size bridge at a multi-billion dollar price tag. Well, John Lee follows this a whole lot closer than I do. Airline pilot, retired, and reporter for Clark County Today. John, welcome back to the program. Lars, you teed that up perfectly. Thanks for having me on today. Well, I do what I can, but John, let's start with some really basic stuff that I think any kid could do in a story problem. There are a lot of different pots of money that they might reach into uh, to get the total price tag of uh, three, $3.2 to $4.8 billion to build this bridge, even assuming they put in the unnecessary light rail and probably a lot of other things to make it look pretty uh, that aren't necessarily necessary. Uh, do they have that money available to them to replace this bridge already? Absolutely. Two weeks ago on Halloween, we got a very nice Halloween present. The 16 members of the Bi-State Legislative Committee that supposedly provide oversight to this were receiving a briefing from the Interstate Bridge team, and they told them that the IBR team has identified $2.5 billion of federal money that John, are likely dropped, to receive. You, John, you dropped out for just a moment. You said they've identified $2.5 billion of federal money toward the cost of this project. Exactly right. And so simple math, as you said, proves we do not need tolls to pay for the interstate bridge. If you add to the $2.5 billion, $1.1 billion that the state of Washington legislature has already allocated to the project, and a $1 billion or more that the Oregon legislature is supposed to come up with to match Washington's contribution, you have at least $4.6 billion, and the high end of the cost range was $4.8 billion. Clearly, tolling money is not needed to pay for this. 
especially when both the high and the low-end estimates, the $4.8 and the $3.2 billion, included light rail. So it is totally possible to do this, including the light rail, which nobody wants, as you noted, but without tolling. Now, they still plan, the, the official plan is that they will build the bridge, spend the money, and still put tolls on the freeway, right? Exactly right. And they come up with all sorts of reasons for, well, we are going to use variable rate tolls for congestion pricing as a financially negative incentive to encourage people to travel at other times when it's not congested or to use mass transit, which you and I know nobody wants to use here in the Portland metro area, especially crossing the river. But the reality would be you would end up with double tolls to drive Interstate 5, one toll for the bridge and a second toll to drive on I-5 into downtown Portland. The financial reality of that is that people respond to financial pain and incentives, and it would cause a huge amount of diversion onto I-205 that would only have a single toll. And so both bridges would become congested and cause problems, and neither would solve the real problem that people want, and that's to save time. They're going to make and it a nightmare. And by the way, John, they- John, this congestion pricing, I, this is the part I have the toughest time believing, because Washington in general is run by liberal progressives, you know, Jay Inslee and a, and a bunch of Democrats in Olympia and Oregon to a large extent and Portland are run by liberal progressives. And they'll always tell you, well, we have to look out for the least among us. Frankly, I think conservatives do a better job of that. But in this case, when they say we're going to use congestion pricing, they're talking about pricing poor people off the freeway. And if you say, well, just have them drive in at a different time. Well, the problem is, if you're a poor working person who works for wages and you make just above minimum wage, let's say, and you have to be at work at seven in the morning or eight in the morning, you don't have the freedom to say, by the way, boss, I think I'll show up at 10 o'clock every morning and then I'll stay till, you know, eight o'clock every night or seven o'clock every night. You don't get that kind of flexibility. Upper incomes may get that kind of flexibility, but lower incomes do not. So they're basically saying to these people, you're going to have to pay because when the boss says, I need you at work at 7.30 every morning, and you say, but boss, I have to pay two tolls to drive down the freeway, and my only alternative is to drive a longer distance over the 205 bridge and pay one toll, that's all going to come out of your pocket, and you don't have any flexibility, do you? No. You're exactly right. It is going to harm the low-income, hardworking, poor family the most that the Democrats say they allegedly care about. But in reality, they're going to hurt them the most. Another interesting aspect of this in this whole feel-good sales pitch is they say, well, we want to provide a low-income tolling program, a set of reduced-rate tolls or free tolls for those poor families. Well, think about it. For every single free or severely reduced toll package that they offer, that person no longer has the incentive to drive at a different time or to take transit. But when they get on the road, because it's the variable rate congestion pricing, they're going to drive up the price for everybody else that's paying the tolls. 
because the ch- congestion will increase. And, and it's just an insane program that ultimately is hugely inefficient. In 2021, 68% of the tolls collected in Seattle's I-405 and SR-167 system went to the cost of collection. Nobody in their right mind would ever use a credit card as a private business person that the cost to use that cost you 68% of your revenues. It's insane. I agree with you. And, John, at some point we've got to talk about whether or not we ever get to put light rail to a vote again, because I know to a fair certainty what the voters would say about spending a billion or one billion three to put light rail on when they don't want it to begin with. That's John Lee, retired airline pilot, now a reporter with Clark County Today. In a moment, we got to talk about who the FBI had on the inside of the Capitol on January 6th and the FBI director who's refusing to answer questions. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters on January 6th of 2021? Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Think about how significant that question is from an American member of Congress asking Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, did the FBI have people on the inside of the Capitol imitating and dressed as Donald Trump supporters on January 6, 2021. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. I want to explore this a bit because I don't think the mainstream media is going to give this much attention. But first, I want to invite you to the conversation. If you'd like to take part, it's easy to do at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you're a naysayer, I will put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. If you want to vote in our Twitter poll, that's easy. Two locations for that, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and our website at LarsLarson.com. But Glenn Clay Higgins, known as Glenn or Clay Higgins, he is from Louisiana. He's a reserve law enforcement officer, but he's also a member of Congress. He represents the 3rd Congressional District in Louisiana. And he's been asking the question that a lot of us have asked about the events of January 6th. In fact, it's one of those subjects that I get more phone calls about. There is There hasn't been a week in the last 50 or 60 weeks that I've done this show where I haven't had somebody call up to say, well, yeah, but you're, you're Trump supporters. They went up and they rioted on Capitol Hill because Donald Trump told them to. Now, of course, those of you who pay attention understand that is not what happened. In fact, even the Joe Biden FBI looked at the whole situation on January 6th and said, yes, there was a riot. And yes, there were people who broke into the building. There were also people who were just allowed into the building by the Capitol Police. And we now know that the Capitol Police had days of warning that something was going to happen on January 6th, that the FBI had had identified some of those people who had bad things planned on January the 6th. And the FBI even announced that three days after January 6th. I still remember the day they held the press conference last year three days after January 6th, and said, look, we knew something was coming. We knew there were people with plans for January 6th, and we warned the Capitol Police. And I know that a lot of you have said, well, then why didn't the Capitol Police prepare for that? 
extra barricades, extra security, maybe different gear on the police officers who were inside the Capitol building. No, the Capitol Police said this was all just a spontaneous riot that was, if you believe Nancy Pelosi, caused by Donald Trump giving a speech in which the most notable thing he said was, we are now all going to walk up to Capitol Hill and tell our members of Congress peacefully and patriotically what is on our mind. Now, if you don't believe me, go back and watch the video, go back and read the text of his remarks, and you say, how did a remark about peacefully and patriotically letting the Congress know what's on your mind, which, by the way, is a constitutional right. Free speech is a constitutional right. Right of freedom of assembly is uh, is a constitutional right. Uh, you, you've got all these rights that are protected by the Constitution. The ability to petition your government for redress of grievances. Well, there were a lot of us who had a grievance about the 2020 election. So on January 6th, what was the FBI doing and how did they know so much about what was going on inside the Capitol building? And what Clay Higgins, the member of Congress from Louisiana, suggested, this was in questions. He was asking of Christopher Ray, the current head of the FBI, who isn't answering questions. And you'll hear that in the soundbite. He just wanted to know. Did the FBI have people inside the building pretending to be Donald Trump supporters who were part of making all this happen? Listen to the question. Did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters on January 6th of 2021? Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when. Even now, because that's what you told us two years ago. May I finish uh, about when we do and do not and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, but to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. It's categorically false, but he won't answer questions about who did you have on the inside? For example, here's a question. Who is Ray Epps? Ray Epps was one of the people who vocally urged people to go up to the Capitol building and to break in. And then all of a sudden, Ray Epps, who had just been saying that the night before, doesn't show up at the Capitol building, isn't among those arrested. And by the way, our country has never been the kind of country where the king says, lock that man up. And they lock you up and leave you in a cell for the next year or year and a half. And yet that's exactly what happened to a lot of the people who were accused in the January 6th incident. Now, most of the incident, there were some assaults and people have been charged with assault and some have been convicted and some have been acquitted, I might point out. But some of the people have been held incommunicado in a jail cell in Washington, D.C. without access to faith providers without access to family and friends without access to much in the way of legal representation and you wonder have we become that kind of country like russia or cuba or china where when you run up against the people in power they can just have you thrown in a cage and they can leave you there for more than a year without any kind of hearing without any kind of trial without any kind of resolution of charges that really for most of the people who are in that building amount to a small amount of property damage. Uh, As I said, there were some assaults, and those assault cases have been tried to a large extent. But most of the rest of it was about trespass. Yes, there's a, a special federal statute that deals with trespassing in a government building where you're not allowed to be. 
but it really boils down to trespass. And if you wonder, well, shouldn't those cases have been handled the way you'd handle any trespass case? You show up in front of a judge. The judge might even throw you, if it's a bad enough case, they might even throw you in a jail cell for a few days. They might make you pay a fine, do some community service. How are these people still locked up? And again, Clay Higgins uh, you know, persisted with his questioning of Christopher Ray. Listen to this. Did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol on January the 6th prior to the doors being open? Again, I had to be very careful. It should be I a no. Can you not tell the American people? No, we did not have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters positioned inside the Capitol. Gentlemen's on January time the 6th. has expired. You should not read anything into my decision uh, not to share information. Director Ray, gentlemen's time has expired. Now, I want you to note something. I understand that when they're going to let a witness be questioned, they set time limits on the members of Congress. Clay Higgins from Louisiana ran up against his time limit. But Christopher Ray, the witness, was answering the question, and the moderator cut him off. The chair of that committee said, no, no, you can't answer anymore. You see, I think this is a question that there are some people in Washington, D.C. who do not want the answer to be given, and I'll tell you why. Because Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol Police knew that something was going to happen that day. The FBI knew and warned them ahead of time. And they said, let's let it happen. Because when it happens, no matter what it turns out to be, we'll be able to use it as the predicate for a second impeachment of Donald Trump. By the way, an unconstitutional impeachment of Donald Trump. And we got that signal by none other than the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts, who said, I'm not even going to take part in it. This was a setup from the beginning. It continues to be a setup. And now even the current FBI won't answer the questions. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I want to get back to your phone calls and emails shortly, and I invite you to call at 866-HEY-LARS. You can also send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and... If you want to, you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Now, I've never been a commercial fisherman, but I understand that that industry has been facing some really considerable challenges. But the last place you'd expect to see one of those challenges coming from is from the federal government and Joe Biden's NOAA agency, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. You say, well, what the heck do they have to say about fishing? Well, I wanted to bring on Ryan Mulvey, who's an attorney who is asking the Supreme Court to hear the case against the NOAA uh, for what they're planning to do to fishermen, especially fishermen who are harvesting um, on, on either coast. So, Ryan, welcome back to the program. I want you to describe for my audience what it is that NOAA is proposing that could be so terribly damaging for all these people who make their living in the fishing industry. Of course. Thank you, Lance, for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my colleagues and I, we represent some small family-run fishing uh, vessels in uh, Cape May, New Jersey. That's the very southern tip of the state. And, you know, uh, these hardworking families have been fishing together for generations. And uh, as I'm sure you know, it's it's not easy to turn a profit as a fisherman, especially with increasing government regulation. And what's going on most recently and what this case is about, what NOAA is doing, is really especially offensive. So as it stands, the law allows NOAA to require that a fisherman carry a monitor on their boat to watch them fish. Uh, a few years ago, 
the agency started to realize it wasn't going to have money to pay for those monitors to travel on those boats and watch the fishermen fish. So it decided to uh, pass a regulation that shifted the costs for the monitor onto the fishermen. So as it stands in the herring fishery and in the ground fish fishery in New England and along the eastern seaboard, uh, fishermen not only uh, have to carry these monitors, but they're being asked to pay the salary of the monitor as well, effectively. And that's like not only having to have a state trooper in your car while you're driving down the highway, but having to pay the state trooper's salary, too. Um, These costs are expected at $710 a sea day, um, which can be more than what uh, a boat captain or a fisherman take home at the end of the day. And the government itself has estimated that if nothing changes, this could take away up to 20 percent of, uh, of what the fishermen take home at the end of the day of their revenue. And it could very well endanger, uh, you know, a significant number of boats uh, in this heritage industry. I mean, who can think of, of the Mid-Atlantic or New England without commercial fishermen? It's, it's really uh, quite a thought. Well, and Ryan, I had the same kind of metaphor that was cooking in my head, but it wasn't perfect because I was thinking you have to you have to have a state trooper ride in your car with you, and you have to pay for him to ride. But in the case of these monitors, uh, are your fishermen the kind of fishermen who go out for multiple days at a time, or do they tend to go out in the morning, fish all day, and then and then come back? So, so are they going to are they looking at having to pay for three or four or five or ten days of having this monitor at seven hundred and ten bucks a day? Oh, these trips, on general, you know, they, they last a couple of days. These, these are not day trips. Um, you know, like some of your listeners might go out on a charter boat for a day of deep-sea fishing. You know, these, these fishermen, they're going out there for a couple of days at a time. And, you know, fishing is, uh, you know, it, you never know whether you're going to land anything, right? So you right. may go out there for a four- or five-day trip. You don't catch anything because the fish move, right? Yeah. Uh, you got to use your skills as a fisherman to find that school of, of herring, but you may not find it. Uh, but you'll still be stuck at the end of the trip having to pay the bill uh, for those monitors. Um, and that's, I mean, that <laughs> that's a, cause a significant impact uh, on these companies' bottom lines. Well, and uh, let me ask you this, Ryan. I understand that there's always a concern about what they call bycatch, where you're fishing for one fish, but you incidentally catch some other fish. Uh, and there may be other things that, that will come up as, as an issue. Is this really such a big problem right now that they literally have to have a monitor with them every single time they're on the water for every single trip so that they can watch every single minute of the attempt to catch fish? Well, let me tell you, Lars, that this statute, what's called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, that's the law that governs uh, domestic fisheries, that already requires that the government have monitoring in place to, to watch for this bycatch, like you mentioned. And that monitoring already exists and is federally funded. That, that's statutorily required, and the agency pays for it. The, this extra monitoring that we talk about is totally discretionary. It's something that the agency wants to do above and beyond what the statute requires. Now, the statute does permit for monitors to be put on the boats. That's not something our fishermen challenge. But what the statute doesn't do is give the agency the authority to require that the fishermen pay for it. And the only reason why this case is now at the Supreme Court and why, unfortunately, our our guys lost below um, is what's called Chevron, 
the Chevron doctrine and the idea that courts are supposed to defer to how the executive branch interprets ostensibly ambiguous or silent laws. Um, Here, the agency argued, well, Congress didn't say we couldn't do it, so we're going to do it, and the court should let us do it. And unfortunately, they've gotten away with it so far. But but hold on, Ryan, I think this just came up in the EPA case, didn't it? When you say, okay, we've got a federal agency, and they say, well, now that we're a federal agency, we can do anything we want. And the Supreme Court just said, no, you don't get to do anything you want. You get to do whatever the Congress empowered you to do. Did I hear you correctly? The Congress never said to NOAA, you can have monitors, and then you can pass the bill on to whoever you want to pass the bill on to, in this case, the fishermen. Did Congress give NOAA this kind of authority? We don't think it did. And I'll tell you, it, you, know, you mentioned the EPA case, West Virginia versus EPA, uh, from the Supreme Court's last term. Uh, you're right that there they shot down what the EPA was trying to do. Um, and, but they didn't overrule Chevron. Um, and our view is that Chevron is on life support. Um, we're working now with former U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement, uh, on our Supreme Court, you know, before the Supreme Court on the petition that was filed last month. And we're all agreed that, uh, you know, in the words of uh, Justice Gorsuch in his denial, uh, his dissent from the denial of, of a case, uh, you know, last week called Buffington, it was another case that somebody was trying to get before the Supreme Court. He said it's time for this court to, to uh, you know, chisel a tombstone for Chevron and to get the law back to where it's supposed to be. It's the province of the courts to say what the law is, to interpret it, not federal agencies, not the executive branch. And for too long, the Supreme Court has been afraid to finally put Chevron to bed. They've been tiptoeing around the edges. That's what happened in the EPA case. But we're hopeful that this case um, with these fishermen will finally give the court a chance um, to get rid of Chevron and to get rid of really an egregious instance uh, of overreach. It's really scary to think that we have agencies going out there (laughs) saying we can't afford to, to, uh, to put these guys, these inspectors, effectively, on your boat. Uh, and instead of going to Congress to ask for more money, the way the Constitution says it's supposed to work, we're just going to pass a, a regulation and make you pay directly, as if we, we can arrogate that authority to ourselves, no matter whether Congress has a say. Well, see, I've, I, Ryan, I remind my audience all the time. I said when bureaucrats do this, if they're authorized by the Congress, you can punish the Congress for giving them that authority because you get to punish them every two years, at least the House, in, in elections. But with faceless, nameless bureaucrats who can't be fired, you have no control over what they do, and those people get to do things like destroy your industry. Ryan, thanks so much. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. 22 and a half years of serving the Pacific Northwest with honestly provocative talk. How about this? If Tacoma can do it, why not every city in the Pacific Northwest? An ordinance has now taken effect in Tacoma that bans camping in certain parts of the city. Tacoma City Council members passed the ordinance October the 11th. It took effect yesterday. The ordinance prohibits camping and storing your personal belongings in a 10-block radius around temporary shelters in the city. 
uh, as well as something called Aspen Court. They're even putting cute little fuzzy names on things like a city-permitted emergency and transitional housing facility. The ban also extends to all public property within 200 feet of Tacoma's mapped rivers, waterways, creeks, streams, and shorelines. I kind of waited for the greenies to show up and say, hey, this, this homeless stuff, uh, ideologically, we're on the side of the homeless, but we don't want all that contamination in the river. So if Tacoma can get it done, why not every city in the Pacific Northwest? This segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com. For an instant offer to sell your home immediately, no showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. Go to NickShivers.com for details. Now to your calls. Let's start with Bill. Hey, Bill, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Oh, hey, Lars. Uh, in the last hour, you talked about uh, Nick Rolovich's suit against Washington State for not taking the jab. Yep. He's, uh, and, we, in fact, made it the Twitter poll, so if people want to vote on it, should government workers fired for not getting the jab get their jobs back? Now, the specific case I brought up is uh, Rolovich, the former coach at Wazoo, who has now sued the school. It's a multi-million dollar lawsuit because he says he's still owed for about three and a half years of a $10 million contract, two million bucks a year for five years. And he says they fired him for not taking the jab. Should he get his job back, and should the state have to settle up with him? No, he should not get his job back because he was a lousy coach. But, oh, but okay. the, the, right. the school now you're bringing in a side so, issue, but that's yeah, okay. Go no, ahead. Exactly, but uh, it should absolutely be his right if he takes the jab or not. However, in that situation, the decision he made not to take the jab adversely affected his ability to do the job he was hired to do. And how? that's why he was fired. No, how? no, but but how? Because oh. I laid it out that the argument that was made at the time, and we knew considerably less two years ago, uh, uh, yep. about the time the, the vaccine actually arrived in the Northwest on the 14th of December of 2020. So we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of that. And we were told, well, when the vaccine gets here, we got it all handled then. And then we found yep. out, well, uh, why should I take the vaccine? Because it'll keep you from getting COVID. Bill, does it keep you from getting COVID? No. Does no, it keep it you from transmitting didn't... COVID? No, it doesn't. Okay. So, so what's the purpose? No, but we know it now. And now that we uh, yeah. know that, should they say to not just Rolovich, but to every state worker that got fired, all the snowplow drivers, all the ferry operators, every one of the people who got fired from state and local government because they wouldn't take the jab, we were wrong. Uh, the, the, the government was wrong in assuming that this would protect anybody. Now that we know that, we're going to drop the vaccine mandate and we're going to hire you back. Should they do that? Yeah, there definitely needs to be some accountability on the part of the state and Jay Inslee, of course. Now, do you think Jay Inslee I, is going to agree to be accountable? Oh, of course not. You know, but but uh, I was, and I guess I was, I was focusing in a little more specifically on uh, on Nick Rolovich uh, because I I really keep up on Cougar football. But I do think in that case, you know, he couldn't attend the uh, the Pac-12 media day. He couldn't go and meet with recruits in their homes. It was it was things like that that is part of the job that uh, that that were adversely affected by his not doing that. 
And at the time, that was a great argument. Today, not so very much. Bill, thanks for the call. Let's go to naysayer Randy. Hey, Randy, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about? we got about two minutes till we hit the hard break. Okay, uh, you stated, I believe you stated that you believe COVID was unleashed either by accident or carelessness. Is that correct? I, I believe that the evidence points in that direction. Could I say definitively it was not released deliberately? No, but, but I think there's a lot more evidence that it was a result of some colossally bad science by the CHICOMs. And, of course, we funded some of the research that I think created the, the virus COVID-19 or uh, SARS-CoV-2. So I believe that it was accidental rather than deliberate. But at the end of the day, whether it was accidental or, or deliberate, it was China's decision to make this dangerous thing, and it got out one way or the other. Does it matter? Uh, yeah, I think it does, because uh, right after Trump was, <clears throat> excuse me, right after Trump was inaugurated in 2017, one Tony Fauci announced that he would, uh, that Trump would face a pandemic in 2020. That's a smoking gun. And, and I think it, 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 it's <clears throat> kind of a smoking gun. But if you assume that Fauci was in on a deliberate release, you might ask yourself, why would he telegraph it that bluntly? Number one, it'd be kind of stupid, like the, you know, like like a like a movie bad guy who says, I'm going to blow up the Pentagon you know, or something like that. And the second thing is, Randy, predicting after after all the other pandemics and epidemics that have happened, predicting that presidents will face a pandemic is not exactly a crystal ball prediction, is it? Because it's pretty, it's pretty likely that humanity is going to face diseases going into the future. I'll give you the last ten. <laughs> well, he was standing next to Bill Gates, and that's the the uh, diabolical I, duo. I don't trust Bill Gates either. You got the Lars Larson show. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It is the Radio Northwest Network, and we at least attempt to serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. And I'm glad to have you with me. I'm glad to take your calls, but we're going to do more of that in the next segment. So if you want to jump in to the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to talk a little bit about the ballot measure that passed in Oregon in this case. I mean, Washington state has its share of crazy gun laws that don't actually stop criminals, but they do affect the rights of American citizens, law-abiding citizens. But Measure 114 takes the cake. It is arguably the most draconian rule anywhere in America. And I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say that. It is a ban on buying of all guns for at least a period of time. And if you say, well, Lars, how long a period? We don't know. It all has to do with other factors, like how fast the police agencies get about writing the rules and regulations and coming up with the classes that are required. This thing is just full of little landmines. 
Well, I, I had Ryan Crandall reach out to me, who's an attorney and co-founder of eLegacy Law, one of the supporters of this show. And he said, hey, I was doing some work for a client and we were putting together some background on Measure 114. And he shared the list with me and we're going to share it online so you can take a look at some of the things he came up with. It stunned me even more. I've read the whole ballot measure, and yet I didn't realize some of the things that Ryan did because Ryan's an attorney, and I, th I thank God I'm not. Ryan, welcome back to the program. Hi, Lars. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the, the biggest surprise for me is that and people have asked, you know, what does Measure 114 do? And I said, well, you got a half an hour because it takes a long time to explain all the various things it does. But one of the most notable that people cued in on is the fact that it bans you from owning any kind of gun or any kind of magazine that will hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition, 10 bullets. And, and then you pointed out, though, you can still, if you already own that gun or own those magazines, you can continue to own them. They're grandfathered in if you owned them before the law took effect. But the police could accuse you of breaking the law, and the burden of proof shifts to the person accused. It's, it's, you have to prove yourself innocent, not the state prove you guilty. Is that a way of shorthanding that? It, yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, it, it does shift that burden of proof and, and kind of creates presumption. If you're found in possession of, let's say, a, a detachable magazine um, capable of, of holding more than 10 rounds, um, you're required to, to affirmatively prove that you have owned that item uh, continuously and, and prior to the date of enactment, um, which looks like it, it, December 8th is going to be the cutoff date um, for Oregon ballot measures. Those typically go into effect 30 days after they're passed, so 30 days after the election. So unless you can prove that you owned it prior to December 8th, um, then you'd be in violation. And by the way, I'm going to ask you to keep your lawyer hat on, Ryan. Do I have the sure. same standard of proof that the state would have? If the state accused me of, a, of, of any other kind of crime, they have to prove that I'm guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Is my standard that I have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I owned that gun that they're saying that I possess illegally in order to escape the charge? Uh, it's a little unclear. It, it does say you have that affirmative defense. Um, I, I would assume that's a more likely than not standard. So, um, you know, greater than 50% likelihood that you owned it, um, you know, before that cutoff date. So one thing I would recommend for any Oregon gun owners at, at this point in time is, uh, you know, make a record, you know, private record of, of all the items that you own, um, particularly those, you know, what they call large capacity magazines, so that if it were ever questioned, um, that you're able to meet that, that burden of proof. Well, and, and that might not even be enough because, Ryan, I say I own the car that's in my driveway, but it has a VIN number on it. I say I own the house that Tina and I own together, but there's a legal description of that piece of property right down to, oh, all the other special language they put in deeds that say you own from this point to that point to that point. I could point to those. With a gun magazine, there's not even a serial number on those things. I know because I own lots and lots of them. If you say, well, you say you own that magazine or owned it before December the 8th, uh, where's the proof that you own that right. particular magazine? There's no, not even a way to identify it, is there? No, and that's the difficulty. You know, firearms have got a, a serial number, and, and that might be a little bit easier to show. But, uh, you know, for those magazines, most magazines, um, you know, uh, I, 
I don't keep the receipts from, you know, every item that I purchase, and, and that would be the only, you know, definitive way to really, but even then, you know, without a serial number, um, that could be really hard to, to prove. Now, I, I'm going to offer people the chance to read the entire list of research that you did. Uh, you're not making any billable hours on that. Sorry about that, Ryan, but because I know billable hours are significant. But uh, what are the other high points of this thing and low points? And then maybe I'll ask you a few of my favorite questions about how this thing is going to actually work. But what were the other landmines that you found in there? Well, we've talked about the restriction on, on magazines. Also, you know, obviously includes the detachable magazines, but also any firearms that are capable of, of holding more than 10 rounds other than a 22. 22s are are exempted. Um, but I, what a lot of people don't realize is, is that a lot of your shotguns, pump action shotguns, um, particularly ones used for self-defense, um, are capable of, of holding more than 10 rounds. Um, they have every single, mini rounds. In fact, oh. virtually every pump shotgun in existence can hold more than 10 mini rounds, can't it? Right. It, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and, and so those items will technically fall under this, this prohibition as well um you know the other thing that the measure does is it it imposes the the permit to purchase requirement um so before you can even purchase or receive a firearm from a a, a transfer you have to go through a a full background check Um, you have to have shown that you've taken a a firearm safety course that has to be administered by uh, approved you know law enforcement certified instructor instructors and and that's a big practical issue is is those classes really aren't being provided um at this point in time it's it's unclear under the law who's going they, to provide they, they those don't classes exist do the they cost. they're, they're they, asking they you to exist. take a class that doesn't exist aren't they exactly and the sheriff's associations have said you know we we don't have the, the manpower or the funds to be able to do this they estimate it could cost you know 40 million annually to run these programs um, and so until those programs are up and running, there's no way to comply with, with the law. And you have to complete those before you can even submit an application to purchase. Um, and so that's, that's a huge issue. Um, firearms dealers have 180 days after the, the law is enacted to either de- destroy any items that are, are prohibited or to transfer them out of state. Um, so that's going to be a huge burden on, on the, you know, the sporting industry. Um, and so there, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of issues, a lot of questions in how this is actually going to be, you know, play out. Ryan Crandall is an attorney and co-founder with eLegacy Law. If you want to see the list of the research he did, you'll find it at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and it's our attempt to serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Our Twitter poll today, should government workers fired for not getting the jab get their jobs back? The former coach at Wazoo, uh, Nick Rolovich, uh, has formally sued the state of Washington and the school and Jay Inslee, saying, you fired me for not getting the jab. You fired me incorrectly. I'm still owed about 60% of a $10 million contract. 
I have a feeling that'll be an interesting case to watch. Today's Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show, and it's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to Rob in Medford, listening on the Radio Northwest Network and KMED, home of Bill Meyer. Uh, Rob, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? How you doing, Lars? Um, I need you to talk me off the ledge here a little bit. Uh, <laughs> okay. This is the first time I voted for a governor in Oregon. And I kind of put everything I had into it. And I, I kind of told as many people as possible. And I'm not seeing any hope uh, with 114 passing. And I don't know if people realize it in other states, but Oregon is a red state, a hard red state. It is controlled by basically two counties. And I've been all over Oregon. Like, people in Portland know nothing about John Day. And it's, that's why the greater, you know, the Idaho Project exists, because we're governed by Portland, yet I live in a hard red county, and all of Oregon is red. And the people in Portland are still voting for Kotech, even though they should be blindly voting for Drazen because they've had a, what have we had, uh, Lars, a governor for 38 straight years, you said? Yep, 1987 uh, was the last, was the end of the last Republican administration, and that was Victor Atia, and he was a good governor. And we've had Democrats ever since, and they have, by my estimation, driven the state into the ditch. And I could give you lots yes. of evidence of that, but I don't want to get oh, in the way I, of I your know, point. Yeah, I know of all the evidence. It's that it's so bad, but yet only in politics would people vote the worst things ever and keep voting for that person. I just flat out don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. If you had somebody in your home living there and they kept putting a hole in the wall, eventually you're going to kick them out. Yep. But yet they'll keep voting Kotech in, even though all these businesses have left Portland and all they've said is because of crime. I've seen all the, you know, all the news reports, these hard liberal people who own businesses, they're crying because their insurance is so high and they don't understand why people keep breaking their windows. And they write in Tina Kotech. Please make and, sense and, of it to me, Lars. And Rob, it, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. And in fact, I'd point out, I think Oregon is a conservative state. And if, say, somebody says, but you have all these Democrats. Well, yeah. But every time there have been issues that have come up where the people vote on the issues, not Measure 114, that's been a disaster. But when Oregon voted on capital punishment, it voted for capital punishment. Is that a liberal position? No, it's not. When Oregon was asked to vote before the Supreme Court ruled on gay marriage, Oregon said no. Is that a conservative position? When Oregonians saw their legislature say, we're going to give driver's licenses to illegal aliens, and citizens said, let's put it on the ballot. Uh, voters will not like that. And they didn't. They voted it down less than a decade ago by a two-to-one th margin. So it was about 63% voted against it. And you say, is that a conservative position? That is a conservative position, and the voters took it. So those are three examples of things the voters have voted on. When 20 years ago, voters voted on um, ballot measure 11, tough sentences for violent crime and crimes against children. Uh, it passed hugely. It passed in the upper 60% range. And when the legislature said, ah, we think the voters uh, you know, goofed, and they, they threw it back to the voters and said, vote on it again, 
they voted it through by an even greater margin. It was close to 75, I think it was 73%. So almost three quarters of the voters said, we don't, we want tough sentences for criminals. And you say, is that a liberal position? No, it's not. And yet, for whatever reason, you've got, and California does the same kind of thing. They vote conservative on ballot measures, and then they put liberal nitwits in charge. And Rob, I'll give you an example. It's not just the crime in the retail businesses. Today, the word came down that a company called Greenbrier, which owns a company called Gunderson, uh, and Gunderson makes rail cars, which are in big demand now. We have a supply chain problem, and they make barges, and they've been doing it for more than 100 years. Now, Rob, imagine the kind of jobs that you have at Gunderson. You have people who engage in steel work, who weld, who, you know, they build, they build things. They make something, right? And you say, those are good jobs. I mean, they pay good money for people who do that kind of work. And, uh, and what's happened? They are leaving the area. We don't know where they're going in America. They're not going somewhere else in Oregon outside of Portland. They're leaving the state. And I would, pro I would guess they're leaving the region, and they'll probably go to some place. Now, they're not leaving because of crime. I, I, I'd be willing to bet that if, if you're dealing with a bunch of guys who, who weld for a living and build rail cars and barges, I don't think those guys, they, they, somebody may, may mess with their vehicle, but do you think that any thief in his right mind would try to rob one of those guys? Uh, I don't think they're leaving for crime. They're leaving because of regulation, because of taxes, because of the business environment, uh, and all these other reasons that they're leaving. And yet they're leaving. Intel, which is the, the largest private sector employer in Oregon, after government is the, is the big employer. Government employs more people than anybody else. But the next biggest one is Intel. And when Intel said, we're going to build a brand new research facility, we're going to spend $40 billion dollars. Did they say we're going to do it here? No, they're going to do it in Ohio. So when you have those kind of colossal disasters, that's, and I, I won't diminish that when you're a business owner and somebody smashes your windows and shuts you down, that's bad. But when you have major companies that say, we can't stand being here anymore, even if we've been here for 100 years, even if our roots are deep right here, we got to leave the region. They're moving away. And you notice that even in, in the Puget Sound area, Boeing, Boeing has major manufacturing elsewhere outside the Pacific Northwest. I think it's South Carolina. And you've got big companies that, uh, that, that have moved their manufacturing. They have moved their jobs. They're moving all those things. And that is, isn't all just because of crime, although crime is, is a big issue. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting it's not. But you've got both crime and the business environment that have both turned so toxic. And Rob, when was the last time you heard about a major company that said, we're going to move to the Northwest and set up shop here? There are people here because they lived here. Phil Knight is here because this is his home. You know, Boeing is there because it's Boeing's home. Microsoft is there because it's Microsoft's home. Bezos lives in Seattle, has Amazon. But those companies are there mostly, I think, because of the personal ties and the origins of the companies. They're not there because they say this is the best business environment. And in fact, Amazon, even Amazon said, we were going to build 24 skyscrapers in downtown Seattle. Nah, we're going to cut that in half. We're going to put a lot of our stuff elsewhere in America. That is not a sign of a healthy region right now. And Rob, you make a very good point. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, Joe Biden sat down with the uh, premier, the dictator of China, Xi, and uh, there were a lot of things they did talk about. Uh, I think it'd probably be easier to make a list of all the things they didn't didn't talk about and probably should have talked about than it would be to list all the things they did. Now, of course, Biden bragged about the length of the meeting. I don't think the length of the meeting was the key thing. The, The key thing was... Did you ask him about some of the most important issues? And I think one of those is intellectual property. So I reached out and we have with us the former Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property of the United States, Andre Iancu, who is co-chair of the Council for Innovation Promotion. Mr. Iancu, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Lars. Thank you. Do you imagine that uh, China's uh, blatant theft of intellectual property from the United States, among others, was one of the subjects that Joe Biden brought up with uh, with with Xi? I suspect not. Uh, First of all, China is affirmatively stealing IP at an unprecedented scale. About 80 percent of counterfeit goods uh, come from China and its territory. Um, But in addition to this, Uh, Just recently, the Biden administration agreed to waive intellectual property rights. That is voluntarily giving away our intellectual property when it comes to uh, COVID-19 vaccine technology, the mRNA platform, and all the other related uh, new technologies that were created by U.S. companies and their partners, and we voluntarily agreed to give it away. So I suspect that that did not come up. Now, let me ask you, Mr. Yonko, anytime I hear about something absurd like that, I think, well, maybe I don't know enough about the subject. Maybe there's some sensible explanation for why the United States would spend billions, tens of billions of dollars to help develop a technology and then just give it away, not to a poor country, but to a country that plans to supplant the United States as the biggest economic power on the globe. Is there something that I'm missing about this picture? Well, look, um, first of all, the waiver is worldwide, China being part of it, of course, but so does, so is Russia, and so is Iran, and so is every other nation of the world. So we decided to agree to waive it, to waive uh, patents worldwide for these technologies. The stated reason is that we want to make sure that all of the people around the world in every country from the developed to the developing world, has access to these life-saving technologies, which I understand the premise, I understand the principle and the desire, but there is absolutely zero evidence that giving away our IP would solve this problem. There is absolutely zero evidence that it would get an an additional shot into an additional uh, person anywhere in the world. All that this has done is to simply give away our IP on this critical technology for, uh, for free and for no benefit. Well, and in fact, isn't there an argument to be made? I mean, for instance, I haven't been in a hospital for me uh, since I was a teenager, and that was only for a short stay. Uh, But I want hospitals to be available when I need them, which means I can't wish for them to be money-losing propositions, because if they're money-losing propositions, they're not going to be there when I need them. And the same is true of, of technology and medical technology in particular. And yet, this doesn't seem like it augurs in favor of, of the American people. Now, if we had said, we'll give you uh, some technology 
uh, to the richer countries like China and others. Uh, but but you're going to have to be just as generous with the poor countries as we've been with the poor countries. That might be a, a, a sensible quid pro quo. Let's talk about the other issues, though, that have come up. You point out that, uh, the, that China now issues more patents than the United States in the past three years and has published more articles in scientific journals. Why do they even bother to ask for a patent if we know to a fair certainty that if they spot a technology out there that they want, they'll just reach out and take it and, and make a copy of it and then sell it up, up against us? Look, China wants to dominate the technologies of the future, and they have at least a two-pronged approach. Number one is to steal technology from the West and from the United States in particular. And number two, in parallel, China is focused on their own uh, uh, innovation. And uh, uh, to that end, China is devoting tremendous resources in creating new scientists, new engineers, opening up labs, and actually innovating. Um, So they're doing both at the same time. As a result, the United States must be very focused, and we must counter, likewise, with a two-pronged attack. Number one, we must absolutely stop them from stealing our technology, either through the forced transfer of technology or the counterfeiting that they're doing, that's got to end, number one. But number two, at the same time, the United States must double down and we must innovate here in the United States much, much more than we have in the past. And the only way to do that in a free market economy like ours is to ensure that we protect our IP and we incentivize investment in these risky technologies of the future. I'm trying to... I'm talking to Andre Iancu, who is the co-chair of the Council for Innovative Promotion, also the former Undersecretary of Commerce for IP. Let me ask you about one of those issues then, about our own innovators. Uh, For the longest time, as I understand patents, uh, the United States would give a patent to somebody who could prove that they came up with the innovation. And then we went not too long ago, if if I'm right about this, correct me if I'm not, to something called first to file, which means... If somebody, and we always imagine the guy or gal in a garage or in their back, you know, on their kitchen table trying to come up with a better mousetrap, and and they work on it for years and years and years, and then they finally get to that point, they're ready to file, and somebody else files the patent first on them, which they didn't work on at all or may not have worked on very much, and you say, but I've been working on this for a decade. You just came in and filed ahead of me. And the U.S. has now made this law that first to file owns the idea, not the person who can prove they've been working on it for the longest period of time or that they came up with the innovation first. Am I right to be concerned about that? You are right that this, has, this was a change in recent law through a bill passed by President Obama in 2012. Um, uh, and for the longest time, the United States, as you say, Lars, was a first-to-invent country. Now, since 2012, we are a first-to-file country, with some exceptions, similar to uh, the rest of the world. But the biggest problem, and, and this does disadvantage the little inventor, the guy and gal in their garage, um, uh, tinkering and not being able to rush to the patent office and pay those filing fees and hire lawyers in the first instance. It, is, it does create this disadvantage. But the biggest disadvantage that we have here is that it's become very, very difficult to enforce, to maintain and to enforce patents here in the United States, making it very difficult to make sure we keep at bay the copycats, either the big corporations, the, the, those with monopolistic tendencies, 
or the foreign companies who try to come here, take our technology and compete. We must simplify the system and we must strengthen the ability uh, uh, to enforce good patents for American inventors. I've got about a minute left. What's the best overall way to do that protection of American innovation? Well, we have to strengthen our laws. We have to make it clear that when a patent issues, uh, it's a good patent. It, 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 it can be defended in court, and it can be done in a reasonably fast uh, uh, way uh, without spending outlandish uh, amounts of resources. And I cannot emphasize enough how important this is. We must make sure that the United States competes for the technologies of the future, whether it's artificial intelligence or quantum computing or autonomous vehicles or biotechnology. We have to make sure we have enough inventors that are incentivized to put in their time and resources to develop new stuff at the fastest clip possible because the stakes are extremely high. If we don't, if we don't innovate here, we will become dependent on foreign nations such as China and the technologies they develop, and this we must avoid. Absolutely. Andre Iancu, co-chair of the Council for Innovative Promotion. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Our Twitter poll today, should government workers fired for not getting the jab? In this case, I've used the example of former Wazoo football coach Nick Rolovich, who has now sued uh, Wazoo. He sued the athletic director, Pat Chun, and Governor Jay Inslee because he says he got cheated out of a multi-million dollar contract that they still owed three and a half years on. So he's brought a suit. But I think all the government workers who got fired for not getting the jab should get their jobs back. You can vote on that. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's start with Jacob. Hey, Jacob, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? So I had a question about uh, with Measure 114 passing in Oregon. Yep. And uh, I know that you know you know, 10, 000, over 10,000 people in a line for the background check. So yep. those people that are in the, back, uh, in the queue for the background check now, because, uh, I mean, it's going to take probably over 30 days for all those people to get their background checks done. Are those people going to need a permit before they can pick up their gun? Well, I, I, I think the answer is it's going to be a lawyer answer, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer. But my understanding is the law goes into effect 30 days after the election has been certified, which is December 15th. So my read on it may be different than the attorney, but I'm not an attorney. So uh, it, it may be that it goes into effect effectively uh, about the 8th of December, or it may go into effect on the 15th of January. But to your point, if somebody went in to buy a gun and they were told, well, there's time that's going to be required for the background check, and then you eclipse the effective date of the, of the, of the new law, whether that's December the 8th or January 15th, one way or another, if you're still waiting when the law goes into effect, they cannot transfer the gun to you. And the transfer, Jacob, happens when you go into the gun store and up, up till the law, up till Measure 114 taking effect, the transfer happens when you go and say, I want to buy that pistol. And they say, fine, we'll run you through the background check. And when they get a yes back, the store transfers the gun to you. You filled out the Form 4473 and all that. They hand you the gun. If you walk in on the 17th of January, let's say, because we know the law will be in effect by then. It may be in effect sooner. And they say, 
uh, we'd love to hand you this gun that you said you wanted to buy, but we can't because under the new Oregon law, you need to have a permit for us to transfer this gun to you. And you don't have a permit. And if you say, well, nobody's issuing permits, they'll say, you're absolutely right, Jacob. Nobody is giving permits and nobody's giving the class that you're required to take before you get the permit. So we can't transfer the gun to you. The sale is dead, isn't it? I see what you're saying. No, and what you're saying makes, well, obviously none of it makes really any sense. But what you're, you know, the way you're explaining it, it makes sense. Well, but and, and let me throw one more example. You know that I, I began buying guns at Northwest Armor years before they were a sponsor on the show. And they're a sponsor of the oh, show I- today. So I have a dog in the fight with them. Uh, I also do some work for Wade's Guns up in Seattle. And they're a great gun store as well. But having said that, I disclosed my dog in the fight. They not only did they tell me Monday, yesterday, that there were, as of Sunday night, 10,700 people waiting in line. But I also know from having conversations with them, do you know there are people, about 80 of them, who have guns that are locked up right now? And they have been waiting the last two years, back into 2020, for clearance on a, back, on a regular background check before Measure 114. So if you say, well, that's outrageous that you might make somebody wait because I suppose what you could tell the gun store, no matter which gun store it is, if it's in Oregon and you're an Oregon resident, if they say, if you'd still like to buy the gun, uh, when they start offering the classes, we don't know when that's going to be, could be in a month, could be in a year. And when they do that, you go take the class, pay the fee, then go get a permit. And once you got the permit and paid the $65 for that, then you can come back and pick up your gun. Until then, we can't give it to you. Does that make sense? Wow. Oh, it doesn't make sense to me, but I, I see what you're saying. Uh, just because this whole Measure 114, it is, I mean, it's not going to protect anybody. Cause nope. Look at right now, you know, like I got told that it's going to be four to eight weeks before I can even go pick up my 12-gauge shotgun, you know. And, 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 it, and I'll tell you what, it sounds like you may not be able to pick it up at all. Because if that 12-gauge, is it a pump-action shotgun? Semi, semi-auto. Does it have a, a and has a tube in it into which you can put rounds, right? That's true, but it came manufactured with a plug. Uh, well, is is the plug welded in so that it cannot hold even ten mini rounds? Mm, no, it's not. It's it it is not capable of. Oh, then it may be one of the few shotguns that's still going to be legal. But if you have a a, a, a shotgun with a removable plug that is capable of holding more than 10, what they call mini rounds, and those are often used for self-defense and other purposes, then they're going to say that gun isn't even legal to possess. Now, and, and if you don't buy it by the deadline, then you can't buy it at all. If you already own it as of the deadline, you can have it. But you know what, Jacob? To move it anywhere, you'll be allowed to have it at your home or have it at a gun range. And to move it from one place to the other, you unload it, you lock it in a lockable box, you put it in your vehicle, and you transport it to the gun range. Then you can load it. Then, Or you can have it loaded at your home. But but you can't have it anywhere else. See, because, I mean, the shotgun that I purchased, it's for hunting. Like, how, yep. like I, I can't go shoot ducks in my backyard, you know, so it's just, it's ridiculous. Well, I don't know. well, the good, people that are good. Make, making up these laws, they're in Portland. You know, they're not. Well, it's that Pastor Mark Knudsen, that, that joker who's one of the chief petitioners. He doesn't know jack about guns, and he's done a real disservice to everybody in the state. And you've got the Lars Larson Show.
With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.